Well, folks, good to see you all here today. We are today launching a new series of messages. Unlike some of the ones we do where we work straight through a book of the Bible, this one is more uh, from topic to topic. We'll be using uh, a particular theme, which we call the goat. Now, if you are paying attention these days, you know the goat has nothing to do with that little creature that goes, bah, and that's not that. The goat is an acrostic, meaning the greatest of all time. Uh, the greatest of all time. I, I had, uh, had some surgery a few weeks ago, and uh, it put me at home for three days. And, you know, I did what most men do. I watched a lot of ESPN. And uh, I noticed that there were just all these debates all the time. Uh, as my daughter says, why do they yell at each other so much, right? It's like the counterpoint thing. Who is the greatest of all time? So if they're talking basketball, you know, it's LeBron or Michael, you know. Uh, unfortunately, if you're like me and you're a Los Angeles Rams fan, you have to hear them talk about how Tom Brady is the GOAT, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, but we won't talk about him anymore today or ever, if I can help it. Uh, if you are, uh, uh, but the good thing about being a Lakers fan is at least we get on the conversation a little bit, because is the greatest Wilt, or was it Shaq, or was it Kareem, or Bill Russell? So with three Lakers, one Celtic, that's my kind of, of deal. Who is the GOAT? Who is the greatest of all time? And then I noticed that the GOAT conversation wasn't just about sports. I was flipping over to CNN, and they were having the GOAT conversation about the presidents. Who is the greatest president of all time? And sometimes they'll talk about who was the greatest wartime president of all time? And who was the greatest this? And who was the greatest that? And I began to think about it. I began to think about who are some of the greatest people in the Bible? What are some of the greatest events in the Bible? What are some of the greatest moments. What does God have to say to us? So what we're going to do from now throughout the summer months, as we're preaching different members of the team, we'll be talking about the greatest of all time and choosing different moments, events, and people from the Scriptures to guide us. In just a few weeks on Father's Day, shockingly, I will be preaching on the greatest father of all time. So I look forward to that with you guys. We'll have a variety of messages based on this theme. So when I started working on this a few months ago, one of the things I began to wonder about was what would it mean to be the greatest pastor of all time? Now, before you whip out your phone, dial 911 and call the arrogance police, please understand I'm very clear that's not me. I do want to say how grateful I am, though, for last week, for the wonderful service, for the great time of, of fellowship and time together downstairs, for the wonderful interaction with the Hispanic and Brazilian congregations and the food and the joy and the encouragement that we all shared. I am so grateful from the work of the search committee, through the vote of the church, through the installation service. So somebody said to me today, so today's your first official sermon. And I thought, you know, I've been employed by this church now in some form or another for about 28 years, and today's the first one. How about that? 
Well, we're going to be talking about the greatest pastor of all time, but you know, really the word pastor means the greatest shepherd, the greatest shepherd of all time. And if you were paying attention, and I know you were when Marlene read the Scriptures for us earlier from John 10, we know who the good shepherd is. Jesus, the good shepherd from John 10, one of those great, great passages. And uh, if you need to, go home today and, and read that again. And that's also the passage, we didn't, it wasn't included in it, but the same chapter has that passage, I have come to give life, life abundant. So it's a great chapter to go home and read. But there's actually an even better known passage of Scripture in there about the greatest shepherd of all time. Psalm 23 is one of the most familiar, one of the best loved passages of Scripture, one of the best pieces of literature in the world. I've heard it recited at weddings and worship services, weddings where it's read with celebration, excitement, anticipation. The Lord is our shepherd as we move forward. I've heard it read at funerals where it was a source of comfort. The Lord is our shepherd no matter what valley of death I pass through, God is there. Comfort in the midst of deep and terrible grief. I've heard it spoken in so many languages. One of the things my Portuguese teacher made me do was memorize it in Portuguese as a way of learning the language. O Senhor é o meu pastor, nada me faltará. Great start. My Greek professor thought it would be wonderful. Yeah. This is what you hear it, people, the joy, the vibrancy. When people recite the 23rd Psalm, there are just few things that can equate to that. So I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now in King James Version, the 23rd Psalm. Let's recite it together. If you know it by memory, great. If you don't, a little cheat sheet for you on the screen behind me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me, Thy rod and Thy staff they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen and amen and amen. What a great passage about the greatest shepherd of all time. Of course, we all have a tendency to connect that also to our earthly shepherds. I was reflecting this week, can you believe I'm 60 years old now? I'm not ashamed of that. That's, that's where I am. Six decades, you know how many pastors I've had? Six. Reverend Riddle when I was a child, Reverend Bates when I was in middle school and senior high, Dr. Fuller as I moved to another church late in high school and through college and through my seminary years. Then to my first uh, job <laughs> working with Pastor Green and then coming here and working with 
Pastor Hill. I guess I was my own pastor for about 20 years. I, I know somewhere in there. What a blessing each of those people have been to me. Now I work on a team staff, and Paula pastors me, and Jonathan pastors me, and we're blessed to be here as shepherds together. As we reflect back on former pastors, I know this was certainly true for me, we can have, and I've heard some of you talk, and when you're talking about me, I'm really glad for it. When you're not, I'm a little bit concerned. We have a tendency sometimes to use rose-colored glasses. Oh, now, what I've discovered is usually you've got to be gone as the pastor before the rose-colored glasses come out about you. You have to retire or move on. And it's certainly not my encouragement today to say don't use rose-colored glasses ever. Certainly, it's, it's not necessary for us to disrespect uh, anybody we've ever been through, the memories they've given us, the way they've served. Very few people go into this job for any other reason than being called by God. There are some who mistakenly wander down that path, unfortunately. The Bible warns about those people. But the men and women who have helped to pastor me been people who have sacrificed so much. I'm so grateful. But none of us are perfect. Matter of fact, I, I'm still trying to figure out, I haven't had a chance to ask her yet. Paula, Pastor Paula traveled this week. Her aunt passed away. She traveled uh, down to, to Alabama. Uh, she put, helped put together the memory book that you guys gave me last week for my installation where you wrote little notes of encouragement. I found it interesting. That's the second note in the pastor encouragement book for me contained a phrase that said something very, very similar to this. I love you. You have been such a blessing to my life. Of course, you're not perfect. There have been those moments. The second note, the second note in the book, can I tell you that gave me a warm fuzzy? It really did. Because the person who wrote it, wow, their faithfulness to the churches that I've been a part of, their faithfulness to me as both a friend and a pastor, there is a friend, the Bible said, who sticks closer than a brother. We often associate that with Jesus, but remember, that was Proverbs that was written in. It was tough. There are people who can do that in our lives. I am so grateful for those kinds of folks. And it's important to say that because as we look at Psalm 23 today, what the Bible has up in the notes, if you have one of those Bibles that makes little notations at the top, it says Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. David, another shepherd who did some amazing things, but who was well known for being less than perfect. <laughs> he was about as perfect as most of us pastor shepherds are. He was a mature man. He at times was filled with some inner struggles that we all carry, conflicting passions, confusing problems. Oh, oh I, I remember. He was the heroic slayer of Goliath. He was that beloved, devoted friend of Jonathan. Yes, he was a gifted musician. He was a military leader, and he was a capable king. But David also had a track record as a fugitive, an adulterer, a murderer, and a flawed leader. As a father, he suffered watching one of his babies die. He later wept when another ungrateful son, Absalom, you may remember him, led an armed rebellion against David, resulting in Absalom's death. 
So David, as a shepherd, has left us not only with the beautiful natural images that we read in Psalm 23 of those beautiful things that a shepherd does, but he has also provided for us in his life an honest testimony about a, what a human life with God often includes, a life of ups and downs and lessons learned that are both painful and joyful. Very interesting. And then there is usins in this room here, you know. The fact is that very few of us in this room have lived an agricultural life. There are a few, but not many. And so when we see something about the Lord is my shepherd, our exposure to what a shepherd it is, is is fairly limited. Uh, and so I, I was thinking this week, what would be some good modern alternatives? If, if, if it was written today, if it was a Psalm of Eddie instead of a Psalm of David, and I was writing for the people of my time, it might start like this. The Lord is my mechanic. He keeps me in good repair. Or the one I'm living most days, the Lord is my IT consultant. He keeps the system up and running. Yeah. Uh, I guess it could be the Lord is my guitar hero. He keeps the music flowing. I, I, and for a lot, the Lord is my therapist. He keeps me smoothed out. Yeah, that's what a lot of folks need. Shep, shepherds, what, what did they do? What were they like? What did they bring to the table that we don't get? See, what most of us don't fully grasp is how critical shepherds were to the community life. Without flocks and herds in the area, there was no sustaining people in towns and communities. You had to have the shepherds. They were critical, critical to community existence in ancient Palestine. And shepherds, while despised for always being with animals and smelling like animals, they were far more than a simple business commodity. They were the source of community life. And for shepherds, their sheep were the source of his life, his identity. This was who he was, not just what he did. So if it is true that all who wander are not lost, as Tolkien suggested, then it would be wise for us to recognize that as long as human beings wander and they need guidance, not unlike sheep, then they will always need to find the good shepherd, someone to lead them and walk with them and care for them. And in the community life of the church, even in the 21st century, good shepherding is so important from pastors, yes, but from elders also, and from Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and all those who work with youth and children, shepherding is absolutely vital. So what can we learn from Psalm 23, from the greatest shepherd of all time? What does it really mean to say, the Lord is my shepherd? And, and I know that often when we listen to a sermon, we think, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Here's what I hope you do today as we think about the greatest shepherd of all time. I hope you get down on your knees tonight when you go to bed and say, thank you, God. Thank you for being my shepherd. If you're hurting this afternoon, that you take some time to pray and say, God, thank you in the midst of my hurt and my pain that you are my shepherd. Today's not about you or me. It's about him. 
So what can we see in him to celebrate and honor and imitate? Well, first and foremost, and I think this is especially important for American Christians, is when you start something by saying, the Lord is my shepherd, you have made a declaration of dependence, a declaration of dependence. And in America, we tend to really like our independence. We don't like to be dependent on others. We don't want other people to, and we will say it this way, to control us. We resent it when people make decisions on our behalf. We prefer to be in the position of strength ourselves where other people might be dependent on us and dependent on our decisions. People in our culture tend to have a lot of struggle with authority, difficulty with authority. I lived in Texas. Let me tell you, those guys got it in spades down there. That's why they all carry guns. <laughs> But I just, I'm joking. Seven years in Texas. I, 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 listen, nobody mess with Texas. They don't like positions of authority, people of authority. And if you ask anybody who serves in a role of authority, even here in Washington, D.C., on the East Coast, in this sophisticated, supposedly, culture we live, you ask a political figure, you ask a school principal, you ask a church pastor, not just this one, you ask, you ask a police officer. You ask the boss of almost any company, and they'll tell you that there are plenty of folks in their realm who really push back constantly against their authority as leaders, even if they are not a particularly authoritarian style of leader. Why is that? Because we love our independence. We don't want somebody else deciding stuff for us. And so because of that, it's a very unusual thing for someone to say, the Lord is my shepherd, because it's a voluntary declaration of dependence on God. You see, David, who wrote these words, he had been a shepherd himself. He knew what every shepherd knows. Sheep are dependent upon the shepherd. Sheep are amongst the most dependent of domesticated animals. They count on the shepherd for food, for direction, for protection, for treatment of disease and injury. Absolutely critical, the shepherd. And so when we say that someone is our shepherd, when David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, having been a shepherd himself, he was saying, look, when we do that, we're saying, God, we need your help. When we say the Lord is our shepherd, we're saying no one can help us better. No one is better able to help us than God himself. We are basically saying that we are foolish and he is wise. That we are essentially ignorant and he is all-knowing. That we are weak and he is strong. And above all, we're saying that he is absolutely trustworthy, and we can depend on him. He is our shepherd. He has never been known to harm one of his sheep. He's never lost a single sheep of his. The great shepherd, this great Lord, is so committed 
so dedicated to us that He's even willing to put His life on the line for a single lamb. And that's why it's wonderful to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, as a declaration of dependence. The second piece of that, the second important item to note is that, see, when we make this declaration of dependence, it's also an admission of ownership. A shepherd owns the sheep and marks them. That was in part of the passage that that Marlene read for us earlier today from John 10. The good shepherd, the hireling, there's this distinction. The shepherd who owns the sheep is different than the hireling who watches over them while it's convenient. Now, today, for those of you who have agricultural background, you know, how how do we mark sheep today? Ah, We put a little electronic tag on them. You know, they're not going anywhere that we don't know about. We can track them down. We can keep up with them. But that's fairly modern invention. For hundreds, maybe thousands of years, shepherds often marked their sheep by notching. See, we brand cattle, but sheep, that's not really how you do it. A lot of them would take a knife, a very sharp knife, and notch the ear of their sheep. Some shepherds were so good at it, they could tell their sheep from a pretty good distance but just by watching the ear flop, watching for their mark that they had put on the sheep. That's how you know they're yours. I, I was thinking about that this week. I think that has something to do with being a Christian, folks. Christians have to be those who know that they are owned and marked by Jesus Christ. You have been bought with a price. Sometimes we are marked by the painful experiences that we go through, suffering, difficulty. The Bible says that the student is not above the teacher, the disciple is not above the master. It should not be a surprise to us when we walk through difficult times and they mark us. I think it must be painful for Jesus to allow those marks to come upon us, and yet they mark us as his. Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. And as you know, it's interesting, numerous places in the New Testament, it describes Christians as those who bear crosses, who take up their cross, almost as if we are all marked by the cross of Jesus Christ who can look at a gathering of people, he can look at a world full of people, and he knows those who are his. They know his voice. Those who bear his mark of the cross, right, are his own. Now, that that sounds a little gruesome to people who are not, you know, in the faith. Oh, what what are you going to do to my ear? What are you going to do to my… I got a lug of cross. Listen, When you know Jesus, what you know is when you say, the Lord is my shepherd, that belonging to the shepherd is worth whatever else comes. Even if it comes, it's a pain for a lifetime. Paul had a problem. He wanted to be taken away. It was not taken away. It's just what it is. It's a privilege. It's a badge of honor to be identified as one of God's sheep. So, if you don't like that language, I just have to tell you, I think we have to get over that (laughs) because the Bible says we are His. Matter of fact, here's how the Old Testament puts it. We are His people, the 
sheep of his pasture. That's what it means when we say the Lord is my shepherd. We exist for his pleasure, not the other way around. We get confused about that far too often, folks. And, and can I just say this before leaving this? Christians, do not be reluctant to let others know that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You, you are loved. It's, sometimes we act like we're almost embarrassed to be Christians. Get over it. We should not be. It is the most wonderful of things to be able to say, I am God's and He is mine. I am my beloved's. He is mine. I bear the mark. The Lord is my shepherd. Lastly, we have to understand that when we say the Lord is my shepherd, it means we're owning up to an incredibly intense and personal relationship. Intense and important personal relationship. So please listen carefully to me. If, if we somehow think that when people talk about a personal relationship with God, or we talk about being owned by God, that that's, you know, that's just religious talk. That's religious jargon. If we glaze over the intimate confidence of the words, the Lord is my shepherd, then we have completely missed the point. I, I've actually heard people say that they think it's arrogant for someone to say, I, I'm absolutely sure I'm a Christian. I'm absolutely sure that I'm saved. You, should, you shouldn't talk like that. Only God knows for sure. Really? Do you, do you confront children who, who say, that, that's my mom. That's my dad. You ought to be able to recognize the one who loves you so much and who has that kind of personal relationship with you. So you should be able to say, Christ is Lord. That's why we say that when we do baptism. You got to be able to say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my shepherd. I can count on him as a Christian. We love him because he first loved us. You don't know how many times over the years I've heard people say, I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school. Depending on their denominational background, they'll sometimes say, I, I went to confirmation. My parents made me do it. They'll say, I, I learned to recite Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer. Again, depending on denominational background, the Apostles' Creed. And then they say this, but I didn't realize until I was an adult that I could have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it was only when a friend led me, they'll say, or it was only when I went to a Bible study and somebody there talked to me about what it means to experience the salvation that Jesus offers, that I began to understand that I had to make a choice for Jesus myself in order to become a Christian. So in this very first sermon that I preach as the senior pastor of Pathways Baptist Church, I want every person 
who has ever and will ever darken the door of this church or watch us online to understand something very clearly because it makes an eternal difference. It's that reading the Bible or going to church or giving an offering or becoming a member or memorizing a psalm or a prayer, none of those things will make a person a Christian. To be a Christian is to choose Jesus, the Good Shepherd. To be a Christian is to be in personal relationship with Him as your Savior, as your Shepherd. To be a Christian is a deliberate choice, a deliberate decision to say, I humble myself. I recognize that I am a sheep, and I need the Good Shepherd. He is the greatest shepherd of all time. He loves and protects his sheep. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you for like two more minutes because here's the thing. I've talked about how he's the shepherd. It is important for me to say to myself, to you, what I expect for myself, and to let Jonathan over here know what I expect of him as a pastor of this church. <laughs> and Paula, when she watches this later, I know she will. And for all of us who serve as pastors and shepherds of this flock, again, whether you're a teacher, Sunday school leader, whatever it might be, an elder of the church, in the passage that we read from John 10 earlier in the service, Jesus explained that there were two types of shepherds, those who own the sheep and those who do not. The ones who do not are called the hirelings, the hired hands. They're not committed. They cannot be counted on in times of danger. These hireling shepherds, when the wolves begin to circle and when the stuff hits the fan, they take off running. They hitch up their robes and they take off running in the opposite direction. They are not a sheep of the flock. They are not a good shepherd. They're not. So, now, is that the kind of shepherd you want watching over you? It's not the kind of shepherd I've been privileged to have. It's not the kind of shepherd I want to be. It's not the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. What kind of shepherd would we be if we were like those hirelings and took off running when times get hard, when people are weak, when there's a threat, when they are in danger? The good shepherd is committed to the sheep, is invested in the sheep, has a sense of ownership of these little ones who stands between the wolf and the flock. That's what they do, ready to fight, ready to die if necessary out of love for the sheep, not out of hatred for the wolf. It's not about the wolf. It's about the sheep. So as we model after the good shepherd, part of our calling as Christians, and certainly part of our calling as church leaders and pastors, is to be willing to stand between the hate mongers and the powerless, the hurting and the wounded. We must love, we must sacrifice, we have to show patience, we have to protect the weak, the isolated, the stranger, the alien. This is the biblical mandate of what it is to be the good shepherd. There was a movie just a few years ago featured one of my favorite actors, Denzel Washington. It's called The Hurricane. You remember it? True story about the boxer Robin, Reuben I should say, Reuben Hurricane Carter. 
He was a middleweight boxer. When in 1966, he was convicted wrongfully of a triple homicide, sentenced to three life terms. He had been a troubled youth. He'd bounced in and out of jail. But in 1961, he started boxing, and he became known for his rapid-fire style in the ring, so he was called the Hurricane. He was convicted in Patterson, New Jersey, for some bar slayings because of false testimony that was fueled by hatred and bigotry and racism. A few years later, in prison, he wrote a book called The Sixteenth Round, and he, he told his story. It created some media buzz. It grabbed the attention of a songwriter, a little guy by the name of Bob Dylan. He wrote a 1975 song called The Hurricane. It began to spread the story of Carter worldwide, but it took until 1988, when Carter was 50 years old, that he won his release from prison. He settled down, lived a good while in Toronto, Canada, spent over a dozen years helping organizations that helped other wrongly incarcerated people. He passed away in 2014. In the movie, Carter is played by Denzel Washington. Near the end of the movie, here's what he says to a visitor in prison, and I want you to hear it. I want you to think about the good shepherd. He says to a visitor in prison, hate put me in here, but love is going to bust me out. Love's like a hurricane. God's great love for us. In the words of Bob Dylan, that's the story of the hurricane. It won't be over until they clear his name and give him back the time he's done. Put him in a prison cell, but one time he could have been the champion of the world. The greatest of all time, who knows? But what I do know is that that kind of love that he was talking about, that's a bust-out kind of weapon. The good shepherd loves the sheep. That's the kind of shepherd Jesus was, the kind of shepherd I hope to be, the kind of shepherd I hope you are, where you are shepherding folks. Jesus, the greatest shepherd of all time. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us, and it's never more clear than when we read this passage that we have known so long and loved so well. You are the good shepherd, Lord Jesus. You laid down your life for the sheep. You gave it for us on the cross. No one took it from you. You laid it down, and you took it back up. And your life extends to us today through the work of salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit alive within us. Thank you that we can be your sheep today, the people of your pasture. We love you. We thank you for loving us so much. Help us to walk faithfully with the one who shepherds us all life long. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.